Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Materials Security, and uh, later on we'll be checking in with Materials co-founder Ryan Noon in this week's sponsor interview. And this week, Ryan is talking about a few things, uh, about how the building blocks for a whole new generation of security tools is just now available off the shelf, uh, like large-scale data crunching tech, right? So that's one interesting thing he talks about. Uh, And he also talks us through an integration Material has done with a groovy new SOAR platform called Tynes. and if you, in case you don't remember, Material is a startup that protects email at rest and does uh, data analysis on it to draw insights from it. And they can do stuff like redact sensitive information or PII from user mailboxes and whatnot. Uh, they're, they're an interesting startup doing interesting things. And yeah, Ryan Noon will be along a little bit later on. Thanks to Material Security for sponsoring this week's show. But let's get into this week's news now. We've got two news co-hosts for you this week. Uh, Adam Boileau, of course, is joining us as is famed InfoSec reporter Brian Krebs. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Hi, Patrick. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, hi, hi, Pat. And yeah, great to have you on the show, Brian. Yeah, Brian's been... You've been on Risky Business before. Like, I think an interview, though, it was a, it was a long time ago, Brian. That's right. It was my first trip to Australia. What was it, 2015? Something like that. that. Yeah, I interviewed you at, Aus- at Ossert, I think. And we've had we've had some audio clips of you here on the on the show before. So, but yes, first news appearance. <laughs> and of course, we wanted to bring you in to talk about the Conti leaks because... Knowing you a little bit, as I do, I know that you have basically been injecting this leak into your eyeballs since it was... Since <laughs> totally it was mainlining re- it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've written uh, four stories under the uh, headlines of uh, the, the Conti Ransomware Group Diaries. Um, Adam and I spoke about the first couple of these last week, but, you, but you've, just, you've just kept going. So I guess, look, I'm going to start with a high-level question. How much of a big deal are these leaks to Conti? And what have we learned from, like everybody's, we've kind of looked at the stuff that we expected to see there, office politics, wow, they're kind of professional. But what have we learned from this that's been unexpected? Because I think that's where where I start getting mega interested. Yeah, I'm not sure how big of a deal uh, these leaks are to Conti themselves, right? Like, they're going to keep operating. They'll ch- they'll change their nicknames. They'll move their servers. They might change a few other things about the way they do stuff. But by and large, they're going to continue uh, what what worked before, right? Um, and they have a and every, every time this happens, what they what we see in the logs is uh, when they get spooked, they just flush their developers. They flush the low level people, uh, and they rehire a bunch of folks. Um, well, it seems, it seems like there's, there's, there's two camps, right? There's the people who say Conti is finished and there's the people who say they're going to recover. And that's something I found interesting because you've got very knowledgeable people uh, arguing both sides, right? I think a lot depends on what happens in Russia over the mm. next few weeks. What I took away from this was as with as many people who are working for these organizations and it fluctuated, for Conti it fluctuated anywhere from like 60 to 100 people at any given time. But as regimented as they were in some cases, you know, they had all these different divisions that had their own budgets and they sometimes borrowed money from one budget to the, you know, to budget the other and so on. They just failed at so many things, at so many basic things. And I got the overall sense that they were just really disorganized. So I felt like there was a a huge amount of room for these groups to become a lot more organized, a lot more professional, and quite a bit more effective. I don't know if that's a surprise, but uh, it's one thing. So you you mentioned that they were were failing at some simple stuff. Can you give us some examples there? Well, for example, I mean, if if you read, you know, each and every one of these chats, you'll see a bunch of different examples where somebody whose job it was to do some really boring thing but nevertheless, very important thing, forgot to do it. They just didn't do it. Or the money wasn't there and they told somebody that the money wasn't there for it and they never followed up and it just fell through the cracks <laughs> and they lost 30,000 bots or something. You know, I mean, this kind of thing happened all the time. So I said, you know, it, one of the things I wrote in the first story was like, I came, came away with the thought that, hey, you know, if these guys just had a little better business management process, you know, flow tracking, they would be a lot more effective. 
It's funny. It's funny what you're saying is they need they need better middle managers, right? So that stuff doesn't uh, do, doesn't slip through the cracks. There, you know, there, there, there's been some amazing insights that we could draw uh, from this data. I mean, first of all, there's yeah, just that look at Conti as an organization and how this stuff is professionalized. Um, but then there's you know, I, look, your part three and part four cover, coverage, I thought were were really interesting. In part three, you look at their procurement efforts in trying to get their hands on software like EDR, presumably so that they can find bypasses for it, uh, and also trying to get their hands on stuff like uh, Cobalt Strike. And they did manage to drop about 60,000 bucks to get their dirty criminal mitts on fully licensed versions of Cobalt Strike. I think 30K was the cost of the licenses and 30K was the cut of whatever kind of semi-corrupt company they wound up procuring this stuff through. But were you surprised how much effort they went through to actually go about acquiring various bits of software? Because I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it was amazing to see, to me, to see the, you know, the Conti overlord saying things like, hey, go ahead and install all these endpoint detection and response tools on all the administrators' computers just to make sure they're not doing anything to, to, you know, to undermine us or, or sell things out the back door or whatever it is they were afraid of. Meanwhile, they're subscribing to and using and pen testing and fuzzing like all of these security tools and weaponry, all this stuff under the sun that, you know, the same tools that countless companies use to defend themselves. And like, while you sort of kind of assume that all this is happening on the bad guy side, like it's one thing to read. <laughs> some it's, it's one thing to saying, think about it. And then, yeah, it's another thing to see, see the actual blow by blow, right? Right. You know, hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Right. And, mm. and, and so um, and that was interesting, you know, so, and they paid a ton of money each month for subscriptions to everything they could get their hands on that, you know, would give them a, um, the upper hand in, in their ransom negotiations. And, and this is, you know, this is a group that, that would harass investors and board members of companies they were trying to extort. Um, and so they bought all these these pretty pricey commercial services that give you just gobs of information about companies like who their board members are, you know, who their principal investors are, whether they have cyber insurance and how much and who with. And yeah, so they like they like subscribing to you know Dun and Bradstreet platinum tier sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah, anything they could get their hands on, and you know that to me that was so fascinating because. You know, and I and I and I wrote this in the story. They, they were sort of they seemed ambivalent about companies that had insurance that would cover ransomware incident. Because on the one hand, throughout the chats, you're looking at this and they're like talking about how much should this victim have to pay, and and it goes from like okay, well we'll charge them two million to somebody pipes in and goes no 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 two million that's garbage. You know we can't even do our own pen tests for half that. Let's let's charge them five million. You know, yeah. And so when they ran up against when they hit the insurance, you know, dealing with the insurance companies was well, we can't do that anymore. We can't ask for the moon. We just, you know, they say, hey, this is what we're going to cover. And that's what we take. And that's it. So the insurance so the companies hand, are compressing their margins, basically. Really? But on the one hand, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it, it hemmed them in. But also it, it they were much faster. You know, like they didn't have to go through these protracted negotiations to get their money. And the other thing that these guys did, uh, they had a couple of guys they worked with on the ransom recovery firms. Um, and I thought that was just really interesting to see from their side. One of the guys they called the Spaniard, and he was, according to one of the mid-level guys there in Conti, he's a Romanian guy working for uh, a big uh, ransomware recovery firm based in Canada. And you could see in the chats, these guys going, okay, look, this deal's going to fall through if you don't get this, that, and the other, and you don't stop doing this. Um, and, oh, by the way, you know, you have access to all of their internal documents. Look for this. Look for that. See if they can have insurance. You know, see if they have that. And, and then maybe we can talk. Maybe we can move forward then. And it was fascinating to see those kind of back-channel negotiations and the fact that they had people who they knew wouldn't waste their time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, we saw the so. same thing with uh, piracy off the Somali coast, right? Uh, where there were, there were trusted go-betweens who would, who would actually handle some of, these, um, some of these ransom payments. So I wanted to ask you too, last week we spoke about this concept of 
perhaps a cybercrime civil war kicking off between the Ukrainian members and Russian members of some of these organizations because they do tend to have common membership. And of course, there's some disagreement about whether or not the ContiLeaks came from a researcher or actually an insider. I know you're on the, it was a, it was a researcher camp, but you know, there's some, um, yeah. uh, certainly a bit of disagreement there, but I, I, I guess, you know, that's, that's not so interesting, but what is interesting is, you know, do you feel like there could actually be a civil war in the, in the, uh, uh, you know, in the criminal underground in that part of the world because of the war? I don't know. And we don't have the chats to you know, up to the date of the invasion so we can yeah. see how they're re reacting to this. Um, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's a pretty good mix, at least as it relates to the Conti group, I think it's a pretty good mix of people uh, in, you know, in Russia, in the, in the Commonwealth and in independent state countries, and then Ukraine, and quite a few of them in Ukraine. In fact, I, I saw one, it was a message, I, I think it was, it was late February of this year, and uh, one of the guys is trying to hail another dude. And he says, hey, hey, where are you? You're not online. Are you there? Are you there? And the dude finally pops online and he says, yeah, I was, I was moving my, my family out of the country. Mm. And he said something else that kind of suggested he was in Ukraine. Yeah. You know? So um, that's a good yeah, question. Awkward. awkward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Basically. <a little> <laughs> hey, just um, a second. I want to bring Adam in here, right? Because, um, you know, of all of the Conti Lake stuff, I figure the stuff that's sort of most directly relevant to your expertise is looking at their sort of procurement and testing and OPSEC and, and, and whatever. Now you're an attacker, you're a professional attacker. That's what you do for a living. Uh, but obviously, you know, you're doing this <laughs> because you're getting paid by the companies to do it. Um, what did you make of Conti's general approach to acquiring you know, tooling and their general approach to how they thought about targeting. Uh, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of crossover between the sorts of things that we would do in, you know, kind of adversarial pen tests or red team engagements and the sorts of thing that they're doing, right? Obviously, they don't have consent, but other than that, I mean, you know, a lot of the methodology makes makes sense, you know, an initial entry through phishing and, and you know, or web app bugs or whatever else they've got. Uh, and then, you know, using Cobalt, everyone does that. Um, but yeah, the, the uh, thing I, that resonated with me was seeing them going through the process of like, now we have to get 47 different antivirus products all set up in a lab environment and in a situation where we can use it to test Yeah, because they can't, they can't throw their stuff at virus total because they're going to yes. get snapped, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we have similar sorts of problems if we're using, you know, private tools or stuff that we don't necessarily want flying around the internet, you know, in an uncontrolled way. So that that re certainly resonated. Uh, and also the challenge of, you know, trusting your inside people uh, and not just like from malice point of view, but just like understanding generally that they're going to be careful with the tools, careful with how they operate, not leak too much stuff, leak too much access to your infrastructure. Like all of those things are very, very relatable. Um, <laughs> and I do, you know, like when I look at some of the, you know, because I'm also management now as well as, as doing hacking, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of the business aspects and the, you know, the financials and the margins and thinking through like, wait, so, like, like Brian says, they could probably do a much better job yeah. <laughs> of, what they, of what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, they, they need to, basically what you're saying is they need to bring someone like you in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably quite a lot of money involved. You know, I, I think you can make the argument that Conti as an organization spent a huge amount of its budget on security, mm. which is more than you can say for most organizations. <laughs> <That's very true. laughs> yes. As far as small, yeah, I mean, essentially, they're a software developer, right? Um, exactly. With a uh, with a deployment arm, shall we say? <laughs> but look, uh, Brian, uh, the fourth piece that you did in this um, in this series looks at how the Conti crew and the Conti, you know, higher ups, they're all about the cryptocurrency world and NFTs and smart contracts and stuff. And they're, they're even talking. It. Yeah. yeah. And they're even talking about, hey, we could do some innovation in smart contracts so we can put the key in a smart contract and people pay and then bang. And, you know, I find this really interesting because like a lot of what they're talking about is just general crypto enthusiast stuff. Sure. But when you talk, when you look at some of the stuff being published by the serious anti-money laundering types and you look at how there's a lot of opportunity to do money laundering through DeFi and whatever. It looks like it looks like the Conti crew are well aware of the opportunities in the crypto space to go beyond Bitcoin and start looking at let's let's coin a term next generation crypto laundering. Right? Was that was that the sense you got as well? Yeah, my sense was they wanted to own the platform or create the platform that others would use, um, and. It's not clear to me 
how serious they were in that. Uh, in other words, you know, yeah, because there's a it, lot of there's it, a lot of talk about like we should build our own exchange and whatever, but it's just it doesn't look like they really did anything around that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of discussion around it, but uh, um, I, you know, it, I I get the feeling like how how can these guys get out of their own way long enough to pursue something like that? Really, I mean, uh, I did uh, I, as part of this uh, at the end of the story, I looked at something else that they were the Conti gang was apparently involved in, and it. And it was this squid cryptocurrency that they came up with. I mean, somebody came up with it. It probably was these guys um, because, you know, a day before um, this big pump and dump happens last year, um, targeting this new cryptocurrency called Squid Game or Squid. I guess it was just called Squid. It was just called Squid, um, but it was around the same time as um, Squid Game and everyone was having, you know, new coin mania, right? So when a coin popped up named Squid and people started pumping it, it took off. Yeah, and so this thing debuts, I guess, in October, um, and then the day before this this massive spike in price, somebody pops into the Connie channel. One of the one of the underlings says, "Hey, just a reminder: this big pump and dump that is going to happen in 24 hours. Make sure you're you know you've got your money down or whatever." Um, and, and lo and behold, it happened. Now, of course, everyone can go check out uh, Brian's work on all of this. I've, of course, linked through to it uh, in this week's show notes. But uh, we've got other stuff to talk about. Um, Adam, I wanted to bring you on, in on this one. Last week, we spoke about how it was pretty clear that Russian troops in Ukraine were using insecure communication methods. Um, we weren't sure the extent of the issue, but man, they're having all sorts of problems. And some of them are like, like if this weren't so serious, it'd be hilarious. Uh, I've, I've linked through to an amazing, um, uh, an amazing Twitter thread from one of the Bellingcat people about how the death of like a senior commander in Ukraine wound up being reported to the FSB via a plain text like 2G telephone line because the Russians have degraded um, data infrastructure in Ukraine to the point where they couldn't use their special encrypted phones. So, you know, the Ukraine in SIGINT agencies are just scooping all of this stuff up. Now, I don't know how much this is a big deal operationally. I'm not a military expert, but you look at this and you think, you know, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly been interesting watching some of these stories come up on on Twitter. You know, we were talking about, you know, people using SDR, you know, um, radios to intercept comms in the field. And then, yeah, seeing similar things happening now in in the cellular world. And and that kind of story about how, you know, the Russians had built a, you know, a domestic secure comms system that ran over the mobile phone network and then also immediately deploy into an environment where they've just destroyed the phone network or they're operating on a hostile phone network. I mean, that in itself was funny enough. And then when you see, you know, examples like this, you know, of them reporting a death of a senior commander back up to, you know, someone in headquarters in, in uh, Moscow, it's pretty, it's pretty grim. And, you know, I'm, I'm amazed, I mean, A, points for resilience of the GSM phone network. The fact that, you know, despite all of this going on, that you can still even get a 2G, you know, GSM call through, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and then I also wonder, like, how many SIGINT agencies are up in all of the Ukrainian mobile operators at the moment? You know, the yeah. Ukrainians are obviously doing it themselves, but, you know, everybody who's got an interest in what's going on there has probably got to be in there. And I imagine the, you know, the lawful intercept boxes in that environment, you know, there's probably like, you know, 25 different root shells on there from different organizations helping themselves through everything. So it's amazing it even works. So, you know, well, there was this, points to the vendor. Yeah, <laughs> there, that. there was, Dmitry Alperovich the other day hosted a, um, a session on, what, what's that Clubhouse thing? Clubhouse doesn't really exist anymore, but everyone does Twitter the, spaces. The spaces, Yeah, yes. so he hosted a two-hour Twitter spaces thing with a couple of experts in Russian military stuff. And the theory that he floated uh, as to why the Russians are having such trouble with their comms well, I mean, there was a that was a, that was a very interesting discussion. Part of the discussion, actually, because there's been all sorts of grift in Russia involving their procurement of secure radios, right? So it, it turns out a lot of Russia's military modernization uh, budget has wound up being used to purchase luxury yachts in Cyprus. So <laughs> <laughs> that's been kind of an issue, um, but. Another part of the discussion, you know, they, they said a theory here is that because no one really got told they were going to invade Ukraine, they didn't actually pull down enough key material um, to load into the radios. So the keys have all expired. So they've had to fall back to some pretty insecure methods. So look, we're, get, we're going to talk about the, the satellite stuff um, uh, later in the show because there's it's the communication situation in Ukraine has got very, very um, strange. But there is some other stuff we should just get through quickly. Uh, Cloudflare has announced 
it's not fully backing out of Russia, right? And CyberScoop has a good piece here where uh, uh, it sort of talks about the the challenges faced by some of these American companies that might not even have a local presence, but might have cu- American customers with like branch offices in Russia and whatever. And, you know, so Cloudflare is saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to stay in there to help you know, keep the internet up because, you know, helping Russians get access to more information is going to be a good thing. I honestly, and you know me, man, I don't like Cloudflare at all as a company. I don't tend to agree with a lot of the decisions it makes, but I'm really at a loss on this one to know whether I agree with their decision, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. I've got no idea because it's civilian infrastructure, you know, and, 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 I don't know, man. There's telcos are pulling out. McDonald's are pulling out. I, I think someone referred to it as a no-fry zone, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> They've turned <laughs> Russia into a no-fry zone. But Adam, what did you make of this? It, it is difficult to know what to do. I mean, we, we had a bit of a conversation uh, last week when we were talking about you know the call for the ICANN to you know drop the .ru top-level domain. Uh, and the same kind of applies to transit and DDoS prevention services like Cloudflare, where, you know, the consequence if they were to pull out for you know russians ability to get access to stuff outside the country or to get perhaps information that didn't come from the russian government um you know you could certainly see how that would mess it up i mean if cloudflare was providing services for the russian ministry of defense or something then you know i could imagine pulling the the plug on that might not be a terrible thing but as you say like it's civilian infrastructure and you know if you're dealing with you know the amount of fallout that pulling out might cause is difficult to foresee. I mean, if you pull out, um, you know, as we were were mentioning that some of the big US, you know, carriers are going to pull services or have pulled services out, you know, that might just degrade the ability of of Russians to get better information from outside the country. And if you pull something like Cloudflare out, then a a bunch of DOS might be more effective and that might harm military sites or government sites, but have collateral damage to civilians that you don't really understand. And the internet's so weirdly interconnected and you know, operates sometimes in ways that we don't really know or understand. Like, I mean, what if, you know, things like, you know, SCADA control systems stopped working and then that gets interpreted as a cyber attack instead of, uh, you know, it just being like the, the tubes are more full. You know, the consequences are hard to foresee. So, you know, much as I am enjoying seeing, you know, no Coca-Cola and, and French fries in, in Russia to try and make a point that we, the West, have feelings about things. Like, it's just, you know, it is risky to go pull plugs in ways that we haven't really seen before. So mm. I don't know what the right thing to do is. No, it's, me it's neither, hard. man. It's it's doing my head in, <laughs> basically. I, you know, I, it, I, I just put this up, but I, I heard uh, the other day from uh, a guy in Ukraine uh, who used to harass me, um, Sergei <laughs> Bobienko, um, flycracker. This is a guy, I don't know if you remember, he he tried to get his frame for heroin possession. And uh, Yeah, is this the guy who sent you stuff from prison, like a Christmas card and stuff? Yeah, we, we, we kind of became pen pals. I got his cards from him. <laughs> he was in Italy's worst prison for like a year and a half. But yeah, he reached out and he said, hey man, I'm in, I'm in Lviv, you know, let me know if, you know, I'm, I'm fighting the Russian hackers, but you know, I said, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And and it and it got me thinking. You know, people in Ukraine maybe have a different uh, opinion about whether Russia should be, uh, you know, online or disconnected or ostracized. I mean, I'm I'm curious what the what a poll would say. But he, according to him, he's like, you know, hey, uh, you know, if it's not the Starbucks, people can't get their Starbucks or their McDonald's. Maybe once they can't get their internet, they'll they'll finally rise up and you know. <laughs> yeah. Overturn no, the regime. I, mean, I don't the, know. <laughs> that, that's the thing. And I was having an offline discussion recently with someone about, you know, the sanctions and like how they will have an impact on civilians. And of course they will. Um, yeah. But what you really want to do is inconvenience them, not put them in danger. Right. And I think that's the, that's the line that's kind of hard to walk here. And that's when this yep. stuff gets um, very confusing. Look, just moving on to a different story here. And I found this one extremely interesting. We've spoken about the hack of the Red Cross many times on the show mm-hmm. since it happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, very early on, I said, I, you know, it was my feeling that this was, you know, an intelligence agency doing this. We've actually got uh, Belarus now being uh, fingered for an attack against NATO countries' refugee management, which makes me wonder if they were behind the attack on the Red Cross because it is, when you think about it, after everything that happened in Belarus last year, it kind of makes sense that they might want that data set. Did you also twig on that, Adam? Uh, I had not, uh, but that is a very good point because, yeah, obviously the, the situation in Belarus you know, has meant there's been a whole bunch of people getting out of the country and then the interference 
um, or you know, people from outside the country obviously want to change government uh, in Belarus plus all the people domestically. Like it, that would be a, a useful set of data for them. And you know, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that connection. But certainly, you know, given that we've now seen them targeting various other, you know, NATO refugee uh, services, uh, there was a, a pretty good fish doing the rounds. Excel spreadsheet that was trying to target uh, target organisations uh, that were handling refugees. So yeah, that that it, it does line up. That seems to make sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, just because um, you know two organisations or two two sets of people who manage you know refugee ba- you know refugee information got targeted doesn't mean it was the same actor. But the fact that Ghostwriter is going after that sort of information uh, in the middle of this conflict, it does make me wonder. Uh, now, we've got a bunch of stuff we're just going to link through to in the show notes so people can read about it. We've got one from Wired about how hacktivists are stoking pandemonium, which is, you know, obviously what we all expected. It's kind of open season at the moment. Uh, there's even a Ukrainian, like, cybersecurity firm offering bounties for, like, tango down, right, on Russian <laughs> sites. And it's, yeah, it's all a bit crazy. What else? Uh, Russia is blocking Facebook. Twitter has started an onion service for people in Russia to be able to access Twitter via Tor. I think that's a good idea. I don't know how long it'll last though, because as we've seen, the Chinese government got very good at blocking Tor onion sites. What do you think about that, Adam? I mean, it's certainly a, a good step. I mean, having Twitter on uh, available on Tor, especially given the amount of censorship going on uh, inside the Russian internet, you know, it makes a lot of sense. But the Russians have spent a lot of time, you know, building infrastructure that can survive the kind of disconnections that we're seeing, and also, you know, provides them the ability to get in the middle of connections and, you know, uh, drop things. As you say, the Chinese have become very good at doing that. Um, you know, even with modern TLS. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess it kind of depends how distracted the Russians are. You know, they've got so much stuff they got to do at the moment um, and so many things to squash on the internet i think you just get you just get the providers to do it you know what i mean you just pass down an edict saying do this Um, yeah and then we you know kind of depends how effective they're going to be at doing that how much practice mm. they've had at blocking tour onions and also make the tour network in general is probably having a pretty busy time at the moment yeah Uh, so you've got to wonder about availability full stop now we got some some technology news to get through and adam uh, i really want to wanted to talk to you uh, about these they're fantastic um we're looking at an apt 41 hack uh so apt 41 is a chinese apt crew and they managed to weasel their way into a bunch of u.s state networks via an a livestock app um (laughs) please talk us through this one this is a andy greenberg story from wired and uh yeah it's just a great it's a wild ride Talk us through. <laughs> so the, um, there's a system that's used by a number of American state governments uh, called uh, USA Herds, which is some kind of web app. Uh, appears to be ASP.net, judging by the sort of bugs in it. Tell, tell, uh, me, that- tell me it's written H-R-D-Z. Because that you know herds, because that's what it would be if it was a Silicon Valley app. Yeah, I wish it was, but no, no, it's just the the sort of typical American government backronyms that they love so much. Uh, the United States Animal Health Emergency Reporting Diagnostic System, <clears throat> USA Herds, and uh, yeah, it looks like um, they found some. Yeah, you know, the the Chinese crew found uh, some bugs in that software, having already been in a couple of state organizations. And obviously they were looking around at what was there. Uh, I imagine they probably pulled the source code, uh, for this product, uh, that you know, runs the livestock tracking and actually found a, you know, pretty classic, um, ASP deserialization bug in it, whereupon you can send like, you know, uh, serialized objects inside the view state kind of cookie that's used to to track state uh, in Windows uh, ASP apps, uh, and they used a hard-coded credential uh, that was the same on every installation to encrypt the the view state thing, which is you know, absolutely a classic ASP.NET sort of bug, um, which they then used to break into a whole bunch of others. And I think Mandiant uh, ended up investigating some of these. Uh, they said there's what something like 18 instances of different states that run this product, and probably they've all gotten themselves owned. Uh, but yeah, same crew's also been rummaging around and you know, popping some things with Log4j. So definitely, you know, doing doing good work. And just goes to show, like once you've gotten in, doesn't really matter that there was a livestock tracking app because you know they're just gonna you know cobalt strike and uh, yeah. cats their way to victory anyway. But there's so much of this like mega obscure stuff, right? Yes. And this is just yes. a perfect example of how um, you know if you're using old and creaky ASP.NET. Uh, apps, then, you know, this is the sort of thing that can happen. 
and it even says not to share these credentials between multiple instances of the same software, you know, like in the config file. So, yeah. yeah but who's got time to read them, Adam? Yeah, ain't, ain't <laughs> no one got time to read a web.config. Uh, and um, look, there's there's a bug in Azure which beggars belief. Um, this <sighs> one I first saw in a Twitter thread. Um, <laughs> just walk us through. It's, you know, how to own Azure with curl on localhost. <sighs> just walk God. us through this one, man. <laughs> uh, so someone started looking at an Azure component called the Azure Automation Service, which essentially lets you upload a bunch of code that gets run, you know, periodically or on demand by Azure. So it's sort of, you know, like kind of similar to a, a Lambda function in AWS or the equivalent thing in Google. And, you know, person started looking at this, uh, leveraged themselves up to a shell on the underlying system that was running their code. So like inside their tenancy on their machine, you can run code by design, uh, starts rummaging around looking at the logs, notices that um, the service was making a callback to some you know uh, other service listing on a high port uh, on the same machine turns out that service gives you uh, tokens to be able to access onwards into the rest of your zero tenancy uh, so this person then rummaged around found you know, looked at what other ports were listening on localhost, so like kind of port scanned uh, the machine, found a bunch of those services uh, that related to other customers and did the same thing, just hands out a token that you can then use to make onwards requests uh, into other users of Azure with whatever permissions of their automation service. So if, for example, they were managing virtual machines or other resources in AWS through their own automation, you could steal a token and then onwards uh, into their tenancies, which is really the sort of thing you don't want in a no. cloud service. No, it's it's really not. And it's another example of how these cloud services have become so complicated that, you know, I, I kind of call them the new server OS, really, because they, they do have the complexity of operating systems these days. I mean, if anything, more complexity yeah. and, and less defined boundaries and less ability to inspect how they operate. Like at least with Windows, you can go load a DLL or, you know, the kernel into it, you know, into a you know debugger or into a reverse engineering tool and try and understand how it works. With the cloud services, you just have to trust it does what it says on the tin and the tin changes every week as they add new stuff. So yeah. it, like if anything, it's more complicated and this is a, an instance of essentially server-side request forgery, right? A really boring bug class way up there in the last top 10. And, you know, Microsoft just kind of has to do better when they're deploying their code straight into production and everyone's using it. Yeah, well, let's see how, how they go. Because, you know, we're just mm. seeing this sort of stuff at such a tempo now. And I think, you know, a lot of these companies that have popped up doing cloud security, uh, they're, they're relevant, they're going to stay relevant. So you can... Um, yeah, anyway, moving on. Um, and look, another one that's just funny, we don't really need to talk about this, but if you throw like an eight kilobyte post request um, at something protected by Google's WAF, uh, it just bypasses it. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, this is a pretty common sort of thing with yeah. with WAF. So you know, both on premise and in cloud ones, you know, you have to make a trade off between performance and your ability to inspect. And those trade off points are different points, different places. But if you're a skilled web attacker, you you know, you kind of know what to expect of of Akamai or Google or Amazon's you know um, WAF products and how to bypass them because they just can't. You know, if you've got a budget of you know five milliseconds to be able to process a request. Like you have to choose where you spend your time, and that's looking for boring SQL injection, not processing 8K deep into the into the request. So, not surprised. Uh, you know, Google I think has this is configurable in their WAF, but most customers don't, of course, understand that or mm. uh, have to use their performance budget somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, it makes uh, it actually makes sense. Depressingly, um, now Adam, you'll remember a few months ago we spoke about how someone had figured out that you could actually use the middleware boxes in the Great Firewall of China to, as like to do like DDoS reflection or something. And it looks like, according to this piece from Ars Technica, I think it's a Dan Gooden piece, um, that is actually happening now. So that's not such great news. Yeah, we saw some research uh, towards the end of last year, you know, looking at how you could use out of state TCP messages, you know, with man in the middle proxies or boxes that are. In in the middle of network connections that don't operate according to the way that TCP is meant to work. And, you know, it was kind of theoretical at the time. This is, a, you know, a good example of it actually happening out in the field. Um, and oh, so this the, isn't, this isn't um, amplification, is it? This is like connection exhaustion. Uh, so there's a degree of, of connection exhaustion, but also traffic amplification. In okay. many cases, uh, 
um, one of these middle boxes is going to be like serving a page that says, hey, you're not allowed to access this resource. Like Grateful of China, Firewall of China, maybe not, but like corporate boxes that do, you know, content protection or something or stop you browsing, you know, non-work appropriate things will generate a page that says, hey, you're not allowed to look. And that page can be the payload of the amplification. So if that page is really big, lots of HTML, uh, then you can get traffic amplification, you know, beyond what you'd even see with, you know, NTP or DNS or some of the other amps that we've seen, you know, in UDP protocols. Another thing that was interesting about this attack was uh, that you can, in some cases, cause it to go into a loop where you've spoofed a request to, you spoofed a source, you know, from your victim, you send it past the middle box, the middle box sends the victim, you know, the big payload, uh, the victim isn't expecting it, sends a reset back saying, hey, I wasn't expecting this. And then the middle box sees the reset and then sends the payload again. So hmm. you as an attacker can kind of get it into a loop where you don't have to keep triggering it. So you fire it once and then it just goes at line rate uh, between the victim and the middle box, which that's also kind of novel. We haven't seen that sort of thing, you know, in, in a while, sort of self-amplification uh, reflection sort of thing. Now, uh, I want to talk satellites. I did, uh, I did mention earlier that this was going to be something we were going to talk about. It turns out... That 40,000-ish SATCOM terminals got knocked offline in Ukraine about the same time as Russia's invasion started. And there's been some really interesting sort of... And, and, and these terminals have been bricked, right? And there's been some really interesting speculation going around on how an attacker might have achieved this, uh, including from the guy that, Adam, when you and I were in Las Vegas together in 2018, we saw this guy do a presentation to the Black Hat press room about satellite security. Um, interestingly enough, too, I, I, I would like to to mention that within the last few months, I think it was NSA put out a bunch of um, advice to people operating satellite networks about about how to secure them. And we were kind of scratching our head at the time, wondering why they would do that. And now we're looking at what looks to be a, um, a an attack designed to brick uh, satellite terminals, possibly used by Ukrainian forces. But look, let's talk through this speculation what do you do you think there actually has been, I mean surely there's been some fuckery here right it certainly does seem a little bit suspicious that a whole bunch of satellite ground stations and terminals uh, would stop working right when Russia goes into Ukraine, especially, you know, for services that are located in Ukraine. And we've seen this right up from Ruben Santamata, who is the guy that, you know, did the Black Hat talk that you mentioned and has done a lot of research uh, into ground stations and terminals and understands satellite networks. Uh, and he talks through some of the ways this might have occurred. And one of the things that was certainly interesting was uh, the particular satellite service, the KASAT satellite and the associated services you know it has a bunch of spot beams into different parts of Europe and North Africa and this attack seems to have targeted services provided by a, a particular couple of the spot beams that do land over Ukraine and a bit over Germany and so that in one sense kind of like if it was the whole satellite you would expect all the service to other regions to have gone away the fact that it looks a little bit targeted and uh, geographically suggests something. Ruben also points out that in the network architecture here that um, that Viasat and Utelsat have for that service, uh, each set of spot beams is associated with another ground station where they relay to, and all the areas that target seem to relate to one particular ground station as opposed to the, you know, the whole network's worth. So a little bit targeted, which is interesting. And then he goes on to kind of speculate about how you could do this and you know we saw um, information from um, some from the French military talking about the fact that the ground stations may have been delayed uh, disabled either permanently or you know in a way that means they can't be easily restored to service uh, and Ruben talks through you know some of the ways that might have happened uh, and in particular uh, he did some research looking at another vendor's terminals uh, whereupon there's like a, a mechanism that the, the ground that the terminals would use to get permission to transmit. So they have to kind of lock onto the downlink signal from the satellite, get themselves in a position where they understand where they're pointing, that they're transmitting within you know their legal limits and so on and so forth. And then they're able to kind of request permission from the ground station end to begin to transmit. And there's some like firmware update processes and all the sorts of things you'd expect for remote management of terminals. And Ruben suggests that you could abuse the mechanisms that the ground station has to control the terminals to permit them to transmit to give them the necessary steering information and that kind of thing to kind of corrupt that data um, on the terminal end so that they could then not reacquire the signal or something else and that kind of leads towards you know maybe an attack that targeted the ground station and then sent the appropriate commands to disable the terminals uh, up that way 
or some kind of radio-borne attack that did the same thing, transmitting up the satellite, inter- impersonating uh, the ground station. So there's, all, there's know, also a, a, an obvious kind of alternative explanation, which is a corrupted firmware update or whatever, which I believe was actually floated as a possible explanation by the German press. Yes, I mean that that's certainly a thing. I the the point that Ruben made about it being targeted to a particular set of of transmitters or a particular set of, you know, kind of spots on the ground that didn't necessarily map one to one to a particular ground station, um or you know, a firmware up that you might imagine would be pushed out service-wide rather than yeah. to a particular spot beam's worth of stuff. So anyway, it, we, we don't really know, but it is interesting to see someone who has done this kind of work on other terminals and other networks say here is a way, you know, something that matches what we've seen discussed, discussed publicly, how it could occur, but we, you know, we also just don't really know. Yeah, now uh, Elon Musk, being Elon Musk, has decided to, to wade into the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and he's offering to send a whole bunch of Starlink terminals uh, into, uh, into Ukraine. And he's offering some spectacular OPSEC advice, Adam, uh, you know, suggesting that people camouflage the antenna. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess. If, if I mean, you when s- you're up against Russian electronic warfare units who can precisely pinpoint your location, yeah. um, I don't know that that's such good advice. It's yeah. sort of like saying you can you can camouflage your iPhone to avoid being targeted by Pegasus. Um, <laughs> Brian, <laughs> what do you <laughs> what do you make of Elon Musk's attempt here? I mean, it seems like he <laughs> he means well, but you do wonder if he's actually asking for trouble and if he might wind up getting his Starlink satellites nuked by you know. Russian yeah. space space missiles or something. Right. I'll tell you, I, just for my own personal use, I mean, I, I, I've been on their waiting list forever. But now I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's not such a great idea. <laughs> maybe it's, maybe uh, it's not the time to be a Starlink customer, right? Yeah. Look, you know, has have you seen any good reporting on whether they've actually delivered any number of these units to, uh, to Ukraine? I haven't, man. There's been so much going on, but I have seen reports yeah. that there has been some jamming already um, happening in Russia. And, you know, sorry, in Ukraine. And, and you know, Russia's electronic warfare capability is really solid, right? So the idea that... It's going to work if Russia doesn't want it to. Um, that's kind of a bit silly. And the idea that you can protect yourself at all by putting some twigs on the, the dish is, <laughs> you know, also, I think, not the best advice. <laughs> I mean, will it work? Probably. You know, I, I don't see the Russians, you know, taking out uh, the satellite communications. But I, like you said earlier, I find it. Uh, more likely they would use it uh, to find out what, where targets of interest are. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, now we've got a, uh, a Linux vulnerability to talk through that's being written up by ours as being uh, its most high severity vulnerability in years. Uh, Adam, have they goosed this headline or is it a big deal? Uh, it is a really sweet bug, uh, and it has a bunch of things going for it that make it that way, which we can we can talk about. Uh, the only caveat, I guess, in terms of applicability, is it's a pretty recent bug, like introduced in a relatively recent kernel. Um, so it's uh, not first, just everywhere, right? Yeah. So first in, introduced in kernel five point eight. So if you're running, uh, you know, one of them like mainline stable Linux distributions, like you know Ubuntu LTS or um, the mainline Red Hats, probably your kernel isn't that new. Uh, so not quite super, super widespread, but like in the Android world, uh, there's quite a lot of Android kernels that recent. Um, so, Well, well tell know, us that, about the bug. What does it let you do? Uh, so the bug itself uh, is called Dirty Pipe. Uh, and, See, oh, I did everything I could to avoid mentioning it. And you just, said, you just said it, you know, like, thanks, <laughs> thanks, guy. So the bug relates to uh, how the kernel processes pipe, uh, transmission of data between pipes. And pipes are a, a mechanism you use to kind of connect two processes uh, together using the kernel to kind of shunt data between them. So between, you know, a file and a network uh, socket or um, something like that. Uh, and this is a, a, a bug that essentially involves being able to have data that's being transmitted through a pipe written into a file that's meant to be read-only, that you wouldn't normally have the permissions to read, through kind of confusing the interaction between the disk cache in memory and where the data that's going through the pipe kind of lives. Uh, so the net result is you can write data to files that you don't have permissions to write to. Uh, and of course, you can turn that into an, any number of ways uh, to escalate privilege. And because it's you know it's not memory corruption per se, or, I mean, yeah, it's not traditional memory corruption so it's you know, 100% reliable relatively straightforward there's a heap of proof concepts that escalate privilege in a number of different ways floating around on github and on the internet it absolutely works uh, so in that respect you know it's a 
a very workable bug. And on Android platforms, I think it's a thing we'll see used in the wild. We saw the earlier uh, Dirty Cow bug, which was a similar sort of thing for the copy on write functionality and disk caching. Um, used by a number of malicious Android packages. So I think we'll see the same thing here. But on server Unix, server Linux, maybe not not quite as much of a big deal. And guys, we're we're running out of time. We're going to sort of wrap it up now. Um, We've got a couple of sort of policy and enterprise items in here. They're in the the show notes this week. Um, That cyber incident reporting bill that failed to get through on the last Defence Authorization Act, that's been approved by the Senate, going back to the House. It's probably going to get clipped onto another bill, but it is coming. And I think the the situation between Russia-Ukraine is kind of like giving that thing a renewed impetus. So uh, we have been following that one. So that's why I thought I'd mention that. Uh, There's growing talk that cyber insurance policies are quote unquote being put to the test by Russian attacks. Uh, So yeah, if we do see some sort of cyber carnage, we could very well see um, the shakeup that we've long known was coming in the cyber insurance world. Uh, But I want to finish now with actually a bit of business news. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, it was being reported that uh, Microsoft was in talks to acquire Mandiant, which I thought was a terrible idea because Mandiant is, you know, one of its core skills is dumping buckets of shit on Microsoft, right? And it would be (laughs) very sad if they stopped doing that. But it looks like Google Cloud has has announced uh, it is acquiring Mandiant for $5.4 billion. The question is, will they pick up the mantle? What do you mean by that, Brian? Well, if Mandiant was known for dumping loads of shit on Microsoft, the question is, uh, under Google, will will they do the same thing? Will they share uh, that much information? I don't know about you, but I always look forward to reading the Mandiant reports because because they're so candid and they're, they're, they've got so much information in them. I think it's it's safe to say if Microsoft talk technology is involved, uh, Google Mandiant will be as candid as it ever was. <laughs> I, I just think that if it involves Google Cloud products, maybe not so much. Um, Adam, what do you think of this move? Uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, Mandiant's independence um, has always been really useful um, and seeing them tied up with a big vendor, you know, obviously may change that stance. But on the other hand, like Google has, you know, the Google Tag Team, the bunch of other really excellent security resources, incident response resources in-house, plus the level of access they have to internet visibility. I'm, I got to imagine there's a bunch of people working at Mandiant going, hey, we're going to get access to some really, really good information, good tooling, be able to do some cool things. And I'm that could actually be quite exciting. I mean, we see the quality of work that comes out of Google sometimes, you know, when they do publicize stuff, you know, obviously Mandiant has plenty of people. I, I'm kind of interested to see where it goes, actually. Like there could be some good some good benefits yeah. uh, from I mean, this. I, I don't know that just by virtue of being a part of Google Cloud, that means they get finger on keyboard for all of Google, right? Like I don't think that's actually how it works, but they certainly can have friendly relationships with other people in other parts of the company, right? So um, yeah, how that how that translates uh we're we're yet to see guys that's actually it for the week's news uh brian krebs thank you so much for joining us particularly to to walk us through your work in uh dissecting the conti leaks Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you it's a lot of fun thank you and adam um good work as always mate and we'll chat to you again next week yeah thanks so much pat i'll talk to you then and yeah great work brian That was Brian Krebs and Adam Boileau there with a chat about the week's security news. Big thanks to them for that. And you can read Brian's work, of course, at krebsonsecurity.com. Now, don't forget, Risky Business does product demos on YouTube these days. And we've even done one for this week's sponsor, Material Security. So I will drop a link to that one in this week's show notes. I think we only have like three or four demos up there so far, but we will be adding one uh, every couple of weeks from here on out. Uh, Anyway, I have dropped a link to to Material's demo in this week's show notes and uh, a link to the Risky Biz video demo YouTube channel. So do go and subscribe to it. Uh, But yeah, in this week's sponsor interview, which is now, we are chatting with Ryan Noon. Uh, Ryan is the co-founder of Material Security, a very interesting startup that's designed to keep email accounts and email at rest secure. Uh, Basically, they use a whole bunch of API magic to redact and hide emails from users' accounts. So even if they do get compromised, there's not really much an attacker can do with the account. They even get in the middle of password reset attempts and whatnot. Now, users can still retrieve historical or sensitive emails, but they need to do something like an MFA challenge first. 
Uh, and because Material Software has access to its customers' entire email corpus, uh, it can do some pretty fancy analytics. So that's another benefit of, of using their stuff. But in this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about Material's recent integration with the Tynes Security Orchestration Automation and Response Platform. Uh, but we actually started off talking to Ryan about a general trend in security technology. The foundational building blocks are better these days, so InfoSec startups aren't having to reinvent wheels all the time. Here's Ryan Noon talking about that. What's interesting in, in the kind of like security product and, and startup land, you're starting to see this like pattern where everyone's like, wait a second, like data infrastructure is a lot more commoditized than it used to be. Like, like the, like Splunk, for example, is an awesome piece of tech historically. That's like why it got so far, but it was this very bespoke data analysis engine, you know, glued to a, a very bespoke front end. And now like there's stuff like Snowflake and BigQuery and all the different like AWS, all the different like Redshift, serverless, whatever, whatever, Databricks, like there's good data infrastructure and security people aren't used to using it directly. They kind of need like an app on top of it. So what you're seeing is, uh, you know, apps like us where we're built with the assumption that we have access to like an Amazon or Google or Microsoft or Snowflake or Databricks or something environment. And then we just build killer apps on top of it that like crunch way more data than they ever did before. And just like, it, it, it's just, you get people like visibility where they just didn't have it because it would have been cost prohibitive to like put that in their sim. Yeah, so, so this is us, this is not about like, this isn't grep and get a cup of tea uh, anymore, right? I think is your point. Yeah, no, you should see all the cool stuff that all the like, you know, internet scale companies like basically built to track like how many people clicked on stuff on their website, like all of this amazing infrastructure has now been packaged up and commoditized and is now like serverless and, you know, elastic pricing and blah, blah, blah. And so security products are being built directly on top of it. It's like a really good trend. A lot, a lot of these like CSPMs that are like, you know, the hotness and growing like crazy, like I'm you, you probably know this. I hate the, the acronyms for these things, but the like the like lace work and whiz and orca and these things like that, right? They're basically just like a thin layer on top of like Snowflake or yeah, they're not or they're not infrastructure like companies. But you've also got companies like Elastic entering the fray and going, well, you know, security can certainly do a lot with our sort of base stuff. So they're going around buying security companies. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think Elastic's doing the right thing, and they're they're differentiating, and they're they're expanding, and they're using their distribution and their footprint. But the point is, you can literally press a button in Google or AWS and get a data warehouse that's better than like I had to run twelve thousand nodes of Hadoop at Dropbox, and you can just press a button and have a better data warehouse than that, and it's mind blowing, and it changes the way security products are going to work. And so in our case, we, we we go and connect to like all the Google and Microsoft stuff. We put it in the warehouse and then we start answering important questions that would have been really painful before. Like, for example, if you give us, you know, uh, if you auth our app against a Google and a Microsoft environment and then you throw in like an Okta or a Duo token, we'll actually ask all of these different systems about their MFA configurations and then merge the information together. And what you see in the field with all these customers is like, it's usually stuff's like surprising, like, you know, Jeff Goldblum, like, you know, life uh, finds a way and like some small percentage of users will just have like MFA that's like broken. You know, we like rolled out at some big insurance company and like it turned out that, you know, some something was set to have one time passwords that, you know, were actually not one time passwords. And so like it was a de facto MFA bypass on like hundreds of people. Right. Uh, you know, it's just like little things like that when you just you have to have all of the data in one place to do it. Uh, things like, you know, uh, like, you know, people send dumb stuff to their personal account that they shouldn't. And it's actually fairly easy with modern data infrastructure to like, you know, write a query that figures out uh, all of the personal accounts for all the employees. It's a data set that like people don't actually have like first party. It's not like you maybe you could ask like Workday or something what everyone's like backup email addresses, but security doesn't have access to that data. So we can actually show, hey, by the way, uh, you know, people send little things to their personal email all the time. So they have a copy of it, but like there are people in the company that are exfiltrating important stuff just one at a time, you know? And like, it's just like, it, it's like, yeah. So you can start when, when people, data analysis. yeah, when people start, you, you've got their email history, sending emails to addresses with the same, you know, name in the name field, right? Like that, that is going to be pretty yeah. telling. Right. And I'd imagine that yeah. I, I, just a tiny bit of machine learning around that would be kind of useful. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I just, I don't use the term machine learning when I actually mean data analysis, but like, that's because I'm a more intellectually responsible vendor, but like, <laughs> you know, it's just like if the computer is doing it and it's smart, 
people just use the term machine learning, but like I've got like two Stanford computer science degrees that aren't that old. Like I think I know what it is. I just don't like to bullshit people. <laughs> no, so, no, and we appreciate um, that. Don't worry. Now, Ryan, <laughs> while you're here, I believe you've just finished uh, uh, engineering and integration uh, with your your service with a sort of lightweight saw platform called Tines. Uh, first of all, tell us about Tines because it sounds like it's you know the cool kids uh, saw basically. Yeah, I mean the the sore thing happened, and and you know a lot of people have these products. Uh, whether they're getting all the value out of them, I don't know. But we we learned about this company uh, just from a bunch of our customers. People were just using it, uh, and it's a really nice saw. It's really easy to use. It like I just it's like in like you know hardcore VC land. You know either you you pioneer to space or you're a fast follower against the leader. Like that wave happened already. Like those companies already got acquired. This is someone who didn't care about any of that and just built a good product. And yeah. I'm like, all right, that's good stuff. You know, like yeah. you didn't really care what the VC thought. You just built something useful. And now like smart people are using it to make their life easier at work. Like see, that's see also see also thinks to Canary and Airlock Digital, for examples of those two things. Yeah, like no, who was gonna fund an allow listing startup? But anyway, and they're and they're going so well. But uh, yeah, no, I I like yeah. these sort of companies who just say, Yeah, we're gonna do this because it's useful. Um so, yeah, so what is, is, is it is it like a company? <laughs> <laughs> is it like a typical saw or is it like just like, you know, just a modern sort of development, modern mindset? Yeah, no, basically it's, that's the it's same. It's like well built. Like I yeah, yeah, I saw the demo. It's well built. Uh, you know, you can point and click and put the logic in and hook it in. Because like with us, you know, our customers, there's a really unique thing about our product, which is uh, you get your own copy of our infrastructure. So you can go and get all the different feeds and the whole data warehouse and stuff that's in it. And then we also have, you know, an API on top of it and like point and click event subscription. Like we are a data platform for security unto ourselves, which basically means that there's a million ways for us to integrate with something like Tines. And so there's like a little section in their UI of like all the different kind of pre-built data sources and like, you know, nouns and verbs that you can chain together into a really nice little flowchart. And so we have customers, you know, uh, that are using it that are like, just, this is what I would do when I'm investigating a goddamn phishing report. I go and I check this thing and then I check this thing. And if this smells bad and, you know, and, and it's after 1142 at night, then I go and, and like where we come in is we can also go and like, you know, speed bump things if you don't know yet, or if it's low confidence, but you don't want to leave it. But if you delete it, you're a jerk, right? There's a million, we give people a, a really good data and you can go and access the entire history of a sender or whatever. We have all this data we're talking about, but then you can also just do things. You could actually take remediations automatically that would have been, you know, uh, I mean, I mean you, you know, didn't have our crazy API skills. That's the thing, right? Like they, this is literally what I was about to say. Like it's one thing to be able to take email and throw it at a saw and get it to do things and pull this and pull that. But I mean, what's amazing is you, you know, if you integrate with the right saw, the saw can tell you, make that email not exist uh, in the user's inbox and, you know, abracadabra, that's done. Yeah, like we, we end up just being able to do things in mailboxes that no saw could ever do because the saws wouldn't integrate with like, modify the message using really complicated API calls. They would have like, leave it or delete it. Yeah. Or maybe put it in spam, <laughs> you know? And no, like, and that's, that's the thing, really but you can go abracadabra, make this thing disappear and then reappear when there's an analyst available to actually have a look at it. So I get it now, man. Yeah, like yeah. it was, so, you know, when we started talking about this, I'm like, what is the value of integrating SOAR with like a company that does analytics on email at rest? And I get it now. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's something that like, I'm like kind of auditioning epitaphs. I plan to live a long time We'll see how that goes being a startup CEO these days. Uh, but um, one of my favorite likely epitaphs, uh, and I'm gonna have to make sure my co-founder outlives me and puts this on there, uh, is easy things should be easy, hard things should be possible. Uh, and like, <laughs> Inspiring, like, Ryan, so inspiring. <laughs> uh, but it's like, well, you can fail either way. You're like, you, had, you, you probably had a job where you're like, simple things are impossible here. We just can't do obvious things. You know, like, like it takes, it takes four weeks, you know, to file an expense report here or something. Right. But you've also had a job where like, you're more or less just shuffling deck chairs in the Titanic. And like, you, you know, like you, you can see, you know, the strategic death of your company, you know, in the rear view mirror for years and there's nothing you can do about it. Cause you can't possibly have a moonshot succeed. Like you got to give them both. And so what I like about this integration and, and I like credit where credit's due, like this guy on our team, Chris Long is a really badass second, just did it himself. Uh, you know, this was not a top-down integration, just did it with our customers. He wrote a blog post about it, it's nice, but like, 
our product, you know, out of the box, you just do it and hook it up to the way that users like are reporting phishing and like smart things happen. But like a lot of security teams like want to go and do more advanced stuff where they just they know things about their business, you know, their their environment and you know their their you know threat model that no vendor could ever know, even one as obviously spectacular as us. And so I just I just like when when like some you know little little integration makes you know easy things easier and hard things possible. Just like that's how it ought to be. I didn't come up with that, obviously. <laughs> um, it actually sounds very interesting. And uh, Ryan Noon, thank you very much for joining us uh, to talk about that. It's funny, Chris Long. I'm pretty sure I've bumped into him uh, on the old Twitters over the years. Uh, so yeah, no, that's really that's really great that he was able to do that for you guys. And um, yeah, look, a real pleasure to chat to you. Uh, thanks. We we actually had some drama uh, scheduling this recording due to my flood situation and you've been very flexible so I do appreciate it wanted to make sure I said that publicly uh, but uh, yeah great to chat to you mate and we'll uh, we'll do it again soon cheers yeah always a pleasure sir that was Ryan Noon from Materials Security there, and you can check out a demo of their tech uh, at our uh, product demo YouTube channel. There is a link in this week's show notes. Big thanks to Materials Security for being this week's sponsor and to Brian Krebs for being a news co-host this week. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.